Well, good morning. Welcome to this gathering of Desert Springs Church. My name is Drew Hodge. I'm the music pastor here. If I haven't met you, we're glad you're here. Uh, as others are coming in, just want to say welcome and welcome to guests and visitors. If you're visiting with us today, we're glad you're here. We believe that the Lord has led you here today, and we want to help you to know Jesus and to know our church better. So let us know how we can help. You can email us, info at dscabq.com, or I'll be down front with other leaders and pastors in our church after the service. That would be even better if you would come down and introduce yourself and, uh, and say hello. We'd love to meet you. But let us know how we can serve you today. Brothers and sisters, members of Desert Springs Church, welcome back. How does everybody feel after getting an hour of their life sucked out of them last night? <laughs> Feeling good? Amen. Well, we'll try to sing the daylight saving blues away this morning as best we can. I wanted to take a minute to encourage you this morning and to thank you for doing all that you can uh, to, you could say, jump through these COVID hoops with us uh, as we have registered and wearing masks. I uh, just want to thank you uh, for so many of you have done this uh, with, a, with a hidden smile, and we are grateful for that. And just want to encourage you to continue to lean into these things as we all press on to the end of this COVID season together. So continue to register. That really helps us prepare. And if you register, but then something comes up and you can't make it, uh, just a reminder to let us know so we can free up that seat for someone else. We're, we're really, more people are wanting to come back. So we're wanting to get everybody in uh, that we can. So if you could help us out by calling or emailing the, the office to let us know you won't be here, that would free up a space for someone else. And then just a word about our ushers. Um, they have been the unsung heroes, yes. So let us thank our ushering team. Thanks to Pastor Ron, to Kishwam, his team, and all the ushers. They are the unsung heroes of this COVID season as they have helped us manage these capacities. So if you could, uh, just make yourself easily usherable um, and, just, and just move around and be flexible. That really helps us with managing the spacing and everything. So. Um, we're, we're a family, and we, can, we, can, we don't always have to sit in the same chair at the table, the dinner table, every meal. Um, so let's, let's move around. Let's be flexible uh, for the good of others and ultimately for God's glory as we gather. Well, let's take a moment now to pause, to pray, to ask God for his blessing on our time together. Almighty God, we pray for your blessing on the church in this place today. Here may the faithful find salvation, the careless be awakened. Here may the doubting find faith and the anxious be encouraged. May the tempted find help and the sorrowful find comfort. Here may the weary find rest and the strong be renewed. May the aged find consolation and the young be inspired. By your power, may we with all the saints comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge so that we may be filled with your fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand now and hear from God's word. Psalm 93 says, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. 
Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The Lord reigns. Can you say that with me? The Lord reigns. Let that be the banner over our lives, over our praise. Our king came, he died, he rose again, and is seated on his throne. Let us crown him with our praise now. Wow. 
that say amen. Amen. He is our king. He is worthy of our praise. But so often, we don't live in light of his reign. We are spiritual insurrectionists, committing high treason against his holy throne. So let us take a chance now to confess that together. Let's say this together. Oh Lord, we marvel that you should become incarnate, be crucified, dead, and buried. The empty tomb calls us to adoring wonder, for it is empty and you are risen. The gospels attest it, the living witnesses prove it, and our heart's experience knows it. Give us to die with you, that we may rise to new life, for we wish to be dead and buried to sin, to selfishness, to the world, that we might not hear the voice of the tempter and might be delivered from his schemes. O Lord, there is much sin within us, crucify it, much flesh within us, mortify it. Purge us from selfishness, the fear of man, the love of praise, the shame of being thought old-fashioned, and the desire to conform to our modern culture. Grant us to stand with our dying Savior, to be content to be rejected, to be willing to take up on popular truths, and to hold fast despised teachings until death. Grant us more and more of the resurrection life. May it rule us. May we walk in its power and be strengthened through its influence. For the glory of our living Savior, amen. Amen. Now let us look up from our sin to our Savior who died for us and is with us always. Strange. 
we can know we're forgiven. Before the 
church. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Randy Pierce. I'm one of the non-staff elders at DSC. Would you join me now as we pray? Our Father, you dwell in unapproachable light. Your glory, your majesty, and your beauty are beyond what we can think or imagine. Lord, we cannot see you now, yet there will come a day when we will see you. Lord, we are astonished at the gospel. We are your inheritance, your treasure that you bought with an unimaginable and precious price. We will see you one day, and it will be soon. We will see you, not with these corruptible bodies, but with new ones, with bodies that are fit and able to stand before your glory, comprehend your majesty, and delight in your beauty. But Lord, while we are in these earthly bodies, we groan. There are some among us today, both here and in our community, who grieve because of loss. Lord, we know some who have lost spouses, brothers, sisters, 
nephews, parents, and yes, children. They've lost them to disease, to murder, to suicide, to fire, and to COVID. Would you, our loving Father, have mercy? Would you bring comfort through the Holy Spirit, the only one who can bring true comfort? Lord Jesus, you said that there is no one who's left wife or brothers, parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time. So Lord, would you, would you Lord in your kindness let us leave them? Would you let us leave them to your good and perfect sovereign will? Would you let us leave them for the sake of the kingdom of God? And Lord, would you let us receive more and deeper relationships in and through your body, this church? Lord, we are not asking that you take away the pain, but that you bring comfort through your Holy Spirit that we would be able to bear the pain as we look and hope to that day when every tear will be wiped away. Some of us grieve, Lord Jesus, and through the comfort you have shown, they have been able to comfort others who are grieving. Through the Grief Share ministry, you have used women in our church to bring comfort and hope to both men and women. Lord, but we need more facilitators. We need more men and women, and especially men, who will bring comfort to those who are hurting. Would you provide, Lord? Thank you, too, Father, that you are using Grief Share to bring hope to those who do not know you. Would you continue to use this ministry to bring to light what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God? We ask these things, Lord Jesus, for the honor of your good and beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Let us stand and continue in prayer through song.
is all we need. Riches I need not, nor an empty parade. Thou my inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only first. that you would do all that we just have sung according to your will for your glory and we ask that you would do it by your word by your word Lord be our vision be our strength be our shield be our sword be our dignity and our delight show us Christ afresh may we believe in him again May we find great assurance and refreshment in him again and again, Lord. May you receive all the glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You could be seated. Well, we're in Galatians chapter 1 again today. Galatians chapter 1. We began a new series just last week in the New Testament book of Galatians. And the message of this letter is simply this. Free in Christ. Free in Christ. That's what we're calling this series. And really, that's twofold in its meaning. The gospel is free. That's how it comes to us. It's free. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. And that's what the gospel does. It frees. It frees from both the penalty of sin... And then later on in Galatians, Paul will get to the fact that it frees us from the power of sin. He'll camp out on that in chapters 5 and 6. Predominantly now, he's talking about how the gospel frees us from the penalty of sin. And let's define terms. The gospel, I'm going to say that a lot. It's in Galatians a lot. The gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died and was raised in our place for the forgiveness of sins, and that's a gift that is to be received simply by believing or trusting, not by earning it or working towards it as if we ever could. It is free, and that news is 
freeing. That's why it's good news. Paul had taught these Galatian Christians this free and freeing gospel. But since he was last with them, other religious leaders had come to town and they had taught that the gospel, quote unquote, the gospel isn't quite as free as Paul said it was. They said non-Jews, Gentiles, can become Christians, sure, but only if they are circumcised first, only if they are committed to obeying the Old Testament law, things like the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament law. I said last week that Paul's concern for the Galatians can really boil down to those two decisive words, alone and and. And Paul's gospel was an alone gospel. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But his opponents taught an and kind of gospel. They said, Christ Sure, Christ, but Christ and circumcision. Grace? Of course it's by grace. Everyone believes that, but it is grace and your good works. Imagine this. It's a bit of a silly illustration, I admit, but but bear with me. It's as if Paul had come to Galatia passing out coupons that read, Free grace. It's free But some false teachers later came to town and they said, Ah, Paul didn't tell you about the fine print. It's not exactly free. It is a really good coupon. It's a great discount. But terms and conditions do apply. Well, Paul writes Galatians to say, No, conditions do not apply. Apply. It is free, not a pretty good deal. Christ has done it all. The price has been paid. And the only fine print, Paul would say, if he were in this illustration, the only fine print I need to stress is that if you think you bring your own money to the table, you don't get the deal. Your coupon is null and void. And these Galatians were in danger of showing up to the checkout counter of eternity and pulling out their own wallets as if they had anything to bring to the table. That's why Paul writes Galatians with such urgency, with such great concern, out of great alarm. And that's why he uses such strong language as we saw last week in verses 8 and 9. Let's read those again. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we already preached to you, let him be accursed or damned. As we've said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's where we left off last week with verse 9. And I point it out again this week, not only because it helps us understand the message of the Galatian letter as a whole, but also because it represents something of a contrast to Paul's approach in our passage this week. 
Here's what I mean. We saw last week that in verses 8 to 9, Paul is rightly elevating the message over the messenger. The messenger, we said last week, doesn't validate the message. No, the message validates the messenger. And so you shouldn't trust Paul or even an angel from heaven if they would come with a new quote-unquote gospel, a different gospel. Well, that was last week. That's verses 8 and 9. And this week what he's going to say is, while the messenger doesn't validate the message, that messenger may very well have some things to say that affirm, that substantiate, that help confirm the message. And that's certainly the case with the Apostle Paul. He's got a story. And his life before Christ, his encounter with Christ, his commission by Christ, and the motives and aims that drove his ministry, all of that helps confirm and support the truth of his message. You see, that's a slightly different approach than he had in verses 8 and 9, but it's in a complementary way, not a contradictory way, and we need both. So don't believe something simply because Paul or even an angel says it. On the other hand, don't be too quick to dismiss this guy. He's got a story to tell you. Look down with me in your Bibles. Galatians 1, and I'll start reading in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. Well, there are two unequally sized parts to this passage. Two M words will help us. In verse 10... 
There's Paul's motive. That's the theme of verse 10. And then verses 11 to 24, there Paul is talking about his message. His message. And under that material, we'll have uh, four subpoints that we'll consider. But first, this first M, Paul's motive. In short, he was not a people pleaser. Again, verse 10, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Apparently, Paul's opponents had been questioning his motives. They sought to undermine his message. Therefore, they sought to undermine the man. And therefore, they sought to call into question his motives. They must have said something along these lines. This Paul, he's a people pleaser. He's a man pleaser. That's what he does. That's why his message is so, well, easy. It's easy. He, he makes it easy to be a Christian. He undersells the conditions of the gospel so that more people believe it and so that so more people like him. That's Paul. What would Paul say to such claims? Well, after what he just wrote in verses 8 and 9, remember that? He shouldn't need to say anything. Obviously, this man is not a people pleaser. He just said, if an angel shows up and preaches another gospel, let him go to hell. What Paul wrote in those verses would indicate he is no people pleaser, but in verse 10, he does answer the charge, and he suggests that if anything, it was his former life before Christ where he aimed to please people. If anything, it's before I was a Christian that I was most a people pleaser but turning to Christ, he says here, following Christ, representing Christ to others, suffering for Christ. Well, none of that was a plus for me, humanly speaking. None of it was an advantage to me. Far from it. It was all loss, he says in Philippians 3. It was loss. He's implying here that if he was driven by people pleasing, he would have stayed in his comfy confines of pharisaical Judaism. But having encountered Christ, that's where he's going, that's his point eventually, but having encountered Christ, now he can just state it in black and white terms. If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. It's a fork in the road matter. Do you see what this means? It means that the very nature of the gospel cuts to the heart of our motives. It means that we will not come to Jesus if we're seeking our own glory. Jesus said this in John 5. He said to the Pharisees, you don't believe in me because you seek your glory from one another. Their glory-seeking ways got in the way of believing in Jesus. 
In John 12, John comments that some in those days, quote-unquote, believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't confess him openly for fear of the Pharisees. The very nature of the gospel cuts to the heart of our motives. Will you decide what's right based on what is convenient and popular and familiar and comfortable? Or will you bow to King Jesus regardless of the cost, regardless of the consequences, regardless of what others say? Take note, people pleasing can get in the way of responding rightly to Jesus. Some in this room today need to ask, perhaps for the first time, is it going to be Jesus or saving face with, with mom and dad? Saving face with my non-Christian friends? Maybe you have thought about Jesus before and quickly the question came to mind, well, what would my party friends think if I became a Christian? Or how stupid would I look to my intellectual friends if I, the, the critic, the skeptic, the agnostic, took on some religion? You see, to become a Christian in some ways means that you have to abandon concern for those kinds of questions. You have to abandon concern for your reputation. To become a Christian in some ways is to encounter the risen Savior so wonderfully, so sweetly, and so all-consumingly that you forget about those people-pleasing concerns for the moment and you just run to Jesus. That's what it means to become a Christian. The gospel also frees us from people-pleasing. This is a glorious truth. The gospel not only requires that we give up some people pleasing in order to believe on Jesus, but the gospel itself frees us from people pleasing motives. Remember, the gospel is free, and it is freeing. It's the very nature of the gospel that we would be freed from the world's demands to be driven by what pleases them. Think about it. Our eternal state is dependent solely on what Jesus did. Our acceptance with God the Father is not based on what others think of us, not even what we at times think of ourselves, but what God thinks of us through Jesus Christ. That's how we're justified by God, through Jesus. So cancel culture looms big on the horizon and it threatens us zero. Think of Romans 8 at the end there where Paul says, what can man do to me? Right? If, if God is for us, who can be against us? You see how the gospel frees us from people pleasing. And yet, while this is a, a gospel issue, and while we can't really come to Christ without dying to this innate impulse to please people, isn't it true that, that that dies a slow death? We Christians aren't done with that stuff altogether even now, are we? Oh, no. 
And so we have to put that people-pleasing impulse to death ongoingly as Christians, all the time. It's everywhere. It's sneaky. It's something we have to fight in our church life all the time. How many times have you, in community group, prayed aloud? And you didn't do so well. You, you know, you hit some speed bumps in that one. You just you, you got tripped up. You, you said the wrong thing. You made a Trinitarian error. You get done, you go, what do they think of me? It, it, I could give example after example, and I could put my name after each of them. Uh, we need each other's help. We need the gospel to keep pulling us from this innate impulse to please others. We're already accepted by God. Paul understood that well. And so he could just flatly say, if I was trying to please man, I wouldn't go with Jesus. So may we learn from Paul. May we give some, some time for prayerful reflection about how this uniquely and personally applies to each of us. And, and, and may we, like Paul, have motives that are not driven by people, but Christ as servants of him. That's the first M, Paul's motives. Then there's Paul's message. His message, that's the rest of this chapter. And in short, his message is not a man-made gospel Verse 11, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Here again, we can imagine Paul's critics possibly saying, and yes, it's not explicit in the text that the critics were saying this. We're kind of reverse engineering from Paul's words what he might be answering and I think we're right to do this to do so so you can imagine Paul's critics they might have said yeah we don't know where Paul got this gospel he speaks of uh, you you should know Galatian Christians he's actually not one of the apostles he hasn't really had any significant connection to the Jerusalem church which, by the way, was the epicenter for the birth of Christianity, it matters. That's where the 12 apostles were first from. In this Paul with his grace-heavy gospel, you, you need to know, Galatian Christians, his opponents might have said, you, you should know that that isn't really in the Old Testament. Circumcisions in the Old Testament. Feasts are in the Old Testament. And Paul just wants to shed all that where does he get that? We think Paul made up part of his, parts of his message. Phil Riken, in his commentary on Galatians, he just summarizes it nicely like this. He says, Paul's opponents claimed he was a second-rate apostle with a second-hand gospel. So it would seem Paul's responding when he says, I'd, I'd have you know the gospel that was preached by me isn't man's gospel. It wasn't handed down. It wasn't man contrived. It wasn't thought up by me. I didn't receive it from any man. I, I wasn't taught it. I didn't think of it myself. 
He offers four particulars, four particulars to his argument that his message is not man-made. And the first is this, that his message was received directly from Jesus. Verses 11 and 12, notice especially verse 12, I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Here he's referring to the encounter with the risen Jesus that he had on the road to Damascus. And he'll go on to explain that encounter at some length in the following verses. For now, in verse 12, he's just hinting at it and simply stating the fact. By this fact, this encounter, it's proof. His gospel's not man-made. He didn't come up with it. He didn't get it from some shady huckster on the street. He wasn't mingling Greek philosophy and old Judaism. His ideas were not mere observations like the philosophers of old, which occasionally said true things, right? Philosophers sometimes got things right, but they could have never come up with the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul came to believe and preach. I think he would say, this gospel that I've preached didn't come to me by that telephone game. You know the telephone game? You put people in a circle, and then one person tells a bit of a story to the person next to them, and then that person whispers what they have heard to the next person, and then they whisper to the next person, and on it goes until it reaches back to where it started, and the story is pretty different than where it started. And some think that's what we have with the New Testament. You've got people who heard that they heard, that some heard, that some people saw the resurrected Jesus, and Paul says, no, this gospel is directly from Jesus. And hence, it's not something that we would have come up with on our own. Not if we had a thousand years or a million years. Not if we had all the generations of all of humanity. We wouldn't have determined this solution to the universal sin problem. It's not like putting a man on the moon in the 1960s where if you put your best men on it and give them lots of coffee and they put in a ton of hours and, and then they, they, they try but fail, try but fail, try but fail, but then eventually succeed. This gospel is otherworldly. We wouldn't have thought of it on our own. God had to come down to us and he did so in this unique way with the apostle Paul, a one-to-one encounter, a revelation a revealing of God and his plan. It was a revelation, it says, from him, and it really can also be translated about him. And I think it's both. It's a revelation from Jesus, obviously, but also a revelation about Jesus. How did Paul receive that revelation? Well, again, the arguments, notice they just keep getting stacked as Paul works his way down in our text. So here we could say that his message is confirmed by an unlikely conversion. It's confirmed by an unlikely 
conversion. And let me read right there in the middle of our passage again, starting in verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Well, the story he's alluding to is first told in our Bibles in Acts chapter 9. It's there in Acts 8 and 9 that we're first introduced to a man. There he's named Saul. He'll later be known as Paul. But this Saul was a Pharisee, we're told, a religious Jewish leader. And he was the one leading the attacks against Christians and Christianity. He was trying to snuff out this early religious movement before it got too far and got too out of hand. Acts 8, verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts 9, verse 1, another summary statement. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. There he's leading a campaign of a finding, arresting, imprisoning, and hoping to execute as many followers of Christ as he can find. Galatians 1, he summarizes it as this, I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. But, aren't you glad that there's a but after that? You know that so often in the Bible, the bad news is described, and then there is a glorious but, B-U-T, that follows. And here is one of those in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was even born, who called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. There's that word again, reveal, revelation. This is how it went down in Acts 9. Suddenly, a light from heaven shone around Saul, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And from there, Saul arose from the ground, and everything changed. He rose, went forth, and followed thee, as one song puts it. So what Paul is saying in Galatians about the divine origin of his message, remember, he didn't receive it through man, but received it directly from Jesus, verse 12, that is confirmed by this most unlikely conversion. Paul, or Saul, wasn't a seeker, if you want to call one that. He wasn't exploring Christianity at the time. He wasn't open to the possibility of a risen Jesus. 
He denied it. He, he couldn't believe it. Oh, certainly he had heard that the followers of Jesus claimed that Jesus was dead, buried, and raised, and now living. He'd heard that, but he didn't believe it. And if Jesus isn't risen, as Saul at one time believed, then that whole Jesus thing, it's a sham. At best, the whole Jesus thing was a flop. And at worst, it's blasphemy. It's against God. It leads people astray. He had like, like Samson of old, like Elijah of old. He saw himself in that tradition. He needed to stomp it out. But if Jesus is risen, then that changes everything. If that one big domino falls, then there are a bunch that necessarily follow in its wake. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is a key that unlocks the rest of Christ's riches. If there's no resurrection, then there are no riches. Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians 15. If, if Jesus isn't risen... Well, we're fools. Our message is foolish. We're stupid to live like this. We're still in our sins. We're still doomed. But if he is risen, then all those other things get flipped. We're not foolish. This is worth suffering for. And our sins are completely covered because he died and was raised. Things flipped. Saul. The foremost persecutor of Christians in a moment became the foremost preacher of Christ. If you're not a Christian yet, I ask you, what do you do with that? How do you explain Paul? You should know, non-Christian religious historians of the first century so you, you picture in that non-Christian historians. They're non-religious historians of religion in the ancient Near East. They all agree on the following. You ready for this? They all agree that Saul of Tarsus was a real man who was once a Pharisee and was the foremost persecutor of Christians they all agree that some event or experience apparently took place where Paul then believed that he saw Jesus risen and alive. He believed it. Now, they wouldn't believe that he actually saw it and that Jesus is actually risen, but they believe that some experience took place where Paul came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, and that changed everything for him. In a short time, he came, he went from being the foremost persecutor of Christians to the foremost proclaimer of Christ in the world. And he remained a preacher of the risen Christ until his dying day where he was executed by the Romans for his testimony of this gospel of the risen Christ. Any decent historian of the first century ancient Near East, regardless of their religious preference or conviction, believes all of that to be true. Oh, 
And they also believe that Saul of Tarsus wrote Galatians and that it was probably his earliest letter that we have. So what do you do with all that? What do you do with that historical evidence and with this historical document from his pen? I mean, seriously, what, what is your explanation for this rather undeniable set of facts? And I'll just tell you what the skeptics say. For while they agree to all those things I bullet pointed, all the historians agree, Paul is really who he said he was and really was a bad guy who really became a follower of Christ, their explanation for it falls along these options. Either Saul, Paul, was crazy. I mean, this is, this is just a crazy guy, right? So, I mean, he, he believes, he, he could believe birds are God next. Who knows? Or, or that he had been softening to Christianity because he was around it so much. You know, he'd been hearing Christians occasionally talk about this and, and he was softening to it. Yeah, even while he was having them killed? I don't think so. There's no evidence of softening anywhere. Or they say that Saul couldn't any longer handle his repressed guilty feelings about killing Christians and the best way to deal with those guilty feelings is simply to give up and be one of those Christians. Okay. Sometimes it's easier to believe the miraculous. Paul's conversion was special and unique, and, and it's a, a powerful, we say as Christians, an apologetic. That means uh, not I'm sorry for something, but it's a defense of the faith. The conversion of the apostle Paul is a powerful apologetic. So Paul's unique in that regard, and you shouldn't think, yeah, I'll become a Christian if Jesus shows up and you know, speaks to me audibly and I see him visibly. That may not ever come, but he did do that for Paul, and you should take heed what he did with Paul. And you should also know that Paul's conversion was exemplary from this angle, that if God can save Saul, the foremost persecutor of Christians, he can save anyone, right? Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of Christians, but I received mercy for this reason, so that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is an example. Here's what you do. You encounter the risen Jesus through the pages of Scripture or in the hearing of this message from a messenger like me, like someone else, and come to believe it. Come to embrace it. Damn the consequences. Motives align those simply with God. Who cares what others think? Oh, what an example Paul is of that. And what an example he is of a message that he proclaimed that's not from men. That's confirmed in his unlikely conversion. Also, there is this. It's without consultation of others. We've got four sub-points under this 
second M of Paul's message. And here's the third. And the third and fourth, by the way, will go rather quickly because so much is already now established at this point. But the third one is this. It was without consultation, consultation of others. You see the last line of verse 16, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Now in Acts 9, right after Paul's conversion, there we read some of Paul's post-conversion activities. And what's in Galatians here, which I just read, verses 16 to 18 and following, what's in Galatians really supplements and complements what we find in Acts 9 about Paul's post-conversion activities. They're not quite the same. For instance, in Acts 9, it looks like Paul went to Jerusalem not long after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. But in Galatians 1, we find out that there was a three-year gap between his conversion and coming to Jerusalem. But don't get lost in the weeds here. Don't get distracted trying to piece together historical details that really don't matter. The point is just what he says in verse 16. I didn't immediately consult with anyone about this gospel. I didn't consult with anyone for three years. Now some surmise that this three-year span in Arabia is Paul alone with Jesus getting a one-on-one tutorial on theology. Some even sort of half joke that this is Paul's seminary training because the basic seminary degree for a pastor is the master of divinity and uh, it was three years. It takes three years to do it usually. And so this is Paul's seminary, some people joke. Well, notice the text of scripture doesn't say all that. If you've heard that before, it's this passage that people surmise that from, and it doesn't say that. That doesn't mean it's not possible. It doesn't mean we do know what Paul was doing for three years in Arabia. We do know that Arabia may not mean desert. We're not even sure what he means by Arabia here, and we're for sure not certain what Paul was doing for those three years. But the point, again, is that his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus was so real and so powerful and so true that he didn't need to go consult with anyone about what happened to him. He didn't need an interpreter. It's not like he had some crazy dream and he needed a Daniel to come and tell him what it meant. It was plain. Jesus is risen. The dominoes fell one after another. He didn't consult with anyone. He didn't need to. Verse 18, he goes on. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas. That's Peter. Cephas is his Aramaic name. I remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And again, a lot of detail here, but don't get lost in the weeds. The point is still the same. He didn't consult with anyone about this gospel. 
He spent 15 days with Peter, and, and surely they compared notes. Surely they shared stories. Surely they conversed in all kinds of mutually edifying ways. But his main point, as John Stott so well summarizes it, he says, Paul's first visit to, to Jerusalem was only after three years. It lasted only two weeks. He saw only two apostles. It's therefore ludicrous to suggest that he got his gospel from others. He got it from Jesus. This is confirmed by his unlikely conversion. He had no consultation with others, not even for three years. And this is confirmed by an undeniable change. It's confirmed by an undeniable change. That's the last few verses of our chapter. And this has already been implied by Paul. And we've already sought to apply this point to ourselves today. But now Paul makes explicit what others, other Christians, in those early days of his Christian life, what they had to conclude about Paul's conversion. While Paul was still unknown to the churches in Judea, verse 23, they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. They didn't assume Paul was crazy. You shouldn't either. They didn't assume Paul was the victim of his own tormented conscience for having killed so many Christians. But neither were they dismissive about this so-called conversion of Saul of Tarsus, as I probably would have been. I probably would have been. Oh, he calls himself a Christian now? <laughs> Don't trust that snake. Don't go near him. It's probably a ploy to kill more Christians. Well, thankfully, those in the church in Jerusalem didn't say that. They, they, word spread. Hey, all I know is he used to persecute, and now he preaches. That's it. That's all I know. Well, praise God. Praise God. I think this tells us something about how we should think about others' salvation when we hear of it. One thing before we get to that is that we're reminded here once again that no one is outside of the reach of God's grace. If God's grace found Saul, then anyone can be saved. You can be saved. You might be mocked for becoming a Christian. It might be true that people say, no one saw that coming. But it wouldn't be the first time that people said that about someone who became a Christian. And they sure said it about the Apostle Paul. Isn't one application or implication in all this that, and really this, this goes without saying, but every now and then we just have to say it so that we make sure everyone knows it. And it's this. We must be a church that always welcomes any and all who come to Christ. It doesn't matter their background. 
It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter what they're famous for. It doesn't matter what they smell like. It doesn't matter how different they are from you. We welcome any and all. And we welcome you if you're not yet a Christian. We welcome you. This gospel is tuned for people like you. It's it's attuned. It's, it's designed for people who think, surely not me. You're in a good place if you think, surely not you. We welcome you. We want to welcome you not only to Jesus, we want to welcome you to a community on the other side of coming to Jesus. Isn't it true that God's grace inevitably results in change? We're to be changed by this gospel, right? It's a gospel that's free, but it frees. People could say of the Apostle Paul, all I know is he used to be a persecutor, and now he's a preacher. You know that people would say the same of us. Maybe you weren't a persecutor, but you were at one time not a Christian. Maybe you're not yet a preacher. Maybe you never will be, not in the capital P sense. But isn't there a change that should come? Oh, when you grow up in a Christian home, let's recognize that that change sometimes is subtle. When does someone become from non-Christian to Christian? All my kids, I think, would say, I'm not sure exactly when it was. There was a season when we began talking about good reasons for assurance. And that's my story. So isn't one of the takeaways for all of us to tell our story? to share our story. Whether you have a radical conversion like the Apostle Paul or you have a pretty mundane one, mundane, as if moving from darkness to light and the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of the Savior is ever mundane. We all have a story if we're Christians. And it's a story we should share. Now people need more than just your story. That's not enough. If, if you think that you are seeding the gospel out there in the world only by telling people, I used to not be a Christian, and then I had this experience, and then I became a Christian, if that's all you tell them, and you don't give them the seed of the gospel by which they must, be, they must believe and be saved, then it's not enough. Oh, but story, your story is a great place to start in getting to that seed of the gospel. Use it. Paul shared his testimony in his writings in the Bible at least five times. Acts 22, Acts 26, Philippians 3, 1 Timothy 1, and here in Galatians 1. And, and then also several other passages where he mentions his conversion much more quickly. He, he wasn't shy about his story. He, he, he knew that his story had a powerful apologetic value to it. He wanted others to hear and to believe and to join him in this salvation. That's why he told his story. He didn't do so to promote himself. He didn't do so because he loved to step in the spotlight for a moment and talk about himself. No, he was willing to talk about his story as a servant of Christ and as a servant of the gospel for others. 
and to encourage Christians. Testimonies are what we call this when we share how we became Christians. And testimonies are useful in witnessing to non-Christians and they're also great encouragement among Christians. Isn't that true? Hearing someone's Christ story is a better window into knowing that person than almost anything else. I love hearing conversion stories. A passage like this reminds me that I, I probably don't tell my story enough. We, we should tell our stories to each other more for the encouragement of the grace of God so that we can together do what those Jerusalem Christians did. What did they do? They glorified God because of me. Of course, what doesn't need to be said at that point is that they didn't glorify Paul and they didn't glorify God because what Paul did, because he finally made a change of himself and look at him now. No, it's because of God's grace in him. God's grace in him. Because of that, they glorified God. So let us glorify God this morning for this gospel that is completely free and it really does free. Amen? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this glorious gospel of our crucified and risen Savior. Help us to glory in it and help us to glorify you for it. Help us now to sing of this gospel. Really, what is our gospel story put in song? May we sing of it with great joy, with great confidence, with much glory to you, and with great encouragement to each other as, as a testimony of your grace. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's sing together.
wonder if you can say that and sing that in truth, personally, for yourself. I, I hope so. And, and, and if not, perhaps it's a not yet. Because we've all been there. And, and none of us in this room had that encounter with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus like, like Saul of Tarsus did. In fact, it was a, sometimes for many of us a bit of a struggle. We had questions we needed someone to walk with us through the pages of Scripture 
and point some things out for us. And yet, there's this point when one does become a Christian, the penny drops. The chains fall off. Your heart's free. You see Jesus now for who he is, and and he's no longer foolish or a curiosity or a mystery, but your Savior and your joy. Let us know how we can help if you're somewhere between considering this Jesus and beginning to follow him. I'll be up front after the service, and others will as well, and we're here to greet you and pray with you to answer questions you might have, especially if you're not yet a Christian. Believers, let's go from this place with great joy and confidence. Let let us go with amazement again, amazing love. Can this really be? Oh, that we would live with this dumbfounded joy that God's amazing grace would land upon a sinner like me. That's worth glorifying God for this week and telling others about it. Amen? Well, Paul, in 2 Corinthians, probably just in the other page of our uh, Bibles, if it's open to Galatians, Paul ends 2 Corinthians with this blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.